We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. The show today, a little bit different than usual because I'm on vacation. Uh, So if there was anything major that happened in sports yesterday, uh, you're not going to hear it on the show today. But I'm going to play for you uh, the second part of my conversation from the show the other day with our good friend Howard Gutman. Howard uh, of course, the former ambassador to Belgium, longtime prominent attorney for Williams and Connolly. Uh, he hosts a radio show, as I see it, on WRVA Radio in Richmond, which you can listen to uh, by downloading the Odyssey app. Uh, he is also on Twitter at the Howard Gutman. Howard told us the other day. Howard's had quite the adventurous life. Howard is. Um, I, I love Howard because. And I have other friends like Howard, but he is one of these guys that just always feels like he belongs. Doesn't matter if he's got experience. He feels like, why not me? Uh, And Howard is going to tell us today about a part of his life that we haven't heard about. And that was when Howard acted in television shows and in movies and became good friends with some of Hollywood's A-list actors. So that's coming up today. What he told us about the other day, and if you missed it, it's totally worth a listen, is Howard's years at Columbia as an undergrad in the late 70s, where he was going to class during the day and working at Studio 54. Yeah, that Studio 54 at night. Uh, You'll want to hear some of those stories from Howard from Tuesday's show. Uh, Coming up, Howard's life as an actor uh, in a few minutes. Uh, The show today is presented by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code KevinDC to secure a first deposit bonus of up to $1,000. MyBookie has all of the NFL 2023 prop bets up. Uh, We've talked about some of those. The week one lines have updated. Washington still a six-point favorite over the Cardinals on Sunday, September 10th. There is something about this game I'm going to mention here in a moment. The biggest favorite in week one, the Ravens are nine-and-a-half-point favorites over the Texans. The Cardinals and the Texans, Washington and Baltimore's first week uh, opponents are projected to be the two worst teams in the league. Both Washington and Baltimore have those projected two worst teams in the league at home. Washington's a six-point favorite. Baltimore a a nine-and-a-half 
point favorite over Houston in that opener. Um, The season opener for the NFL, the Thursday night opener on September 7th, Kansas City is now less than seven. They are minus six and a half over the Lions, who people just love uh, the Lions uh, for some reason. But I I actually like the Lions, too. I think they should be a good football team uh, this year. But what struck me in looking at the week one lines um, today is Washington and Arizona's over-under total is 40. That is easily the lowest week one total in the NFL. The second uh, lowest is 41.5, Tennessee and New Orleans. Uh, San Francisco and Pittsburgh also at 41.5. But the first uh, over-under number that I saw when these lines came out, I'm pretty sure it was like 41.5 or 42 for Washington, Arizona. It's now down to 40. So there isn't a lot of confidence uh, in Vegas or among the early week one betters, sharp betters anyway, in Washington and Arizona being able to put up a lot of points in that week one game. Speaking of football and Washington uh, in particular, um, we talked the other day on Tuesday's show about Mike Lombardi uh, suggesting that the best fit for Dalvin Cook would be Washington. And I know we've had conversations about running backs recently. Uh, and my, my reaction the other day is what it's been recently to any suggestion uh, that Washington is desperate for a running back. I just don't see it that way. Uh, but it certainly seems like a lot of the NFL pundits believe Washington uh, needs a back uh, to go with that great wide receiver room, which, let's be clear, includes Terry McLaurin, a clear-cut number one wide receiver, and certainly somewhere near the top 10 receivers in the game. Jahan Dotson, who I actually think has a chance to be their best receiver over the the coming years. And then a lot of question marks, really. I mean, they've got two good ones, really good ones. I think two number ones on their team. So I I like their receiver room. Um, Their receiver room gets built up. Uh, Pundits around the league like the receiver room. It's interesting, though, it's not a deep receiver room that we know of for now. Curtis Samuel's more of, you know, a gadget guy. I like Curtis Samuel. I think he played well at times last year. And, you know, the surprise, uh, according to Albert Breer anyway, during spring, um, which we didn't hear a lot of this from any of the beat reporters, was Deami Brown. Uh, Deami Brown and Sam Howell having been teammates at North Carolina. But the running back room gets dumped on a lot. And after the conversation on the show the other day, uh, a few of you sent me a link to Pro Football Focus's running back unit rankings. So they ranked the running back units, 1 through 32. This happened about a week ago. For whatever reason, I thought we did this on the show when it came out. But maybe we didn't because I, when I saw this, I did not recall Washington's running back unit being ranked 27th out of 32 teams. It just seems too low, 27th. And yet the numbers really don't back up the way I feel. Uh, Because they finished 29th per football outsider's DVOA metric in rush offense. Now, they did finish 12th in the traditional average rushing yards per game number. They finished 12th. But, 
you know, I was looking at yards after contact numbers for Robinson Jr. and Antonio Gibson, and they're not overly impressive from last year. I would have thought that they would have been, especially Robinson Jr.'s numbers. Uh, It just seemed that a lot of the yards that they generated were on their own doing. The offensive line wasn't good. Uh, They couldn't throw the football downfield very well. They couldn't stretch the field to keep defenses honest. But Robinson Jr. finished 25th in the league in yards after contact. Now, he missed four to five games or whatever it was, so his number would have been uh, in total yards uh, after contact would have been higher. But his average number in yards after contact, 30th in the league. You know, and you start looking at the backs that are – uh, you know, way up high on the list, Josh Jacobs, Derrick Henry, Nick Chubb, Tony Pollard actually finished number one in the league in rushing yards after contact as an average per rush. Uh, and so none of the numbers out there really back up the way I feel, which is their running back room is fine. Brian Robinson Jr. has a chance to be a 1,300, 1,400-yard per season back if he averages 20-plus carries a game. Antonio Gibson is great in space. I also think he's great everywhere else. Um, But I don't see a need for running back. But the numbers, which the NFL pundits are looking at, suggest that Washington could use an upgrade at running back. I'm not going to let the numbers convince me on this one. I know what my eyes told me. My eyes told me that they've got two really good running backs. You know, there are teams like um, Chicago and Pittsburgh with Najee Harris who are ranked in front of Washington. None of those two teams. Now, Chicago's got a quarterback that's a dynamic rusher, of course. Um, But in terms of the running back units, Chicago and Pittsburgh's room isn't any better than Washington's. Uh... Anyway, um, interesting conversation about their running backs. Uh, It just seems that everybody looking at Washington from the outside says they need a back. And I think many of us, um, maybe some of you disagree, uh, look at Gibson and Robinson Jr. and say, no, we're fine with that. You certainly don't want to spend big money on a running back you know, no offense to Dalvin Cook, who's great. He, you know, at times fumbles in big spots and has over the last two years. And by the way, he misses games. It's one of the reasons Minnesota's okay with moving on from him. Now, he was expensive to keep and they had salary cap issues. But anyway, enough on the running backs. Let's get to Howard Gutman right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. So you you reached out to me the other day because you were listening to me uh, try to convince Tommy to watch Silo, which... Um, you're, did you continue? You you said that you and your wife watched the first two episodes and that you really liked it. Are you? Are you? Uh, we continued. We're we're continued. I'm. I would not like to have apples thrown in my grave, but um, we are we are watching. And but I do it differently than the Sheehan household. I have the non binge rule. There is a limit. You can watch one episode of a show per day, because otherwise, you know, it's eight hours later and you haven't left the television. <laughs> yeah, that's so, happened. Right. Yeah. So we're on ep- We finished episode five, and in four days I will be caught up, um, but one in the morning. All right. Um, so you said that, um, you know, you, you, you told me that there is somebody in that show Silo, one Tim Robbins, um, Andy Dufresne, Tim Robbins, that uh, you you know very well. And then we got into this conversation the other day, and your your connection to so many different people in Hollywood, um, it's amazing. So I guess maybe the place to start, because I don't necessarily have in order here, but tell everybody how you know Tim Robbins well. So... I am the only, as far as I know, U.S. ambassador, former U.S. ambassador, who's a member of the Screen Actors Guild. Um, uh, and so I have, if you go to my IMDb, uh, I have appeared in several movies, including with Tim. And way, the way it started was there was a terrible television show on HBO done by George Clooney and Steven Soderbergh called K Street. Um, I that remember was, that. I remember that. It was terrible. It was terrible, um, but it was filmed in Washington, and George Clooney just loves Washington. If you have been successful as an actor forever, you want to be a politician. If you've been successful as a businessman, you want to become a politician. If you've been successful as an athlete, you want to become a politician. George had had that, um, and so he ate up Washington. He just, he just loved it, and George Clooney and Steven Seiberg decided they would do this project about the real Washington and bring it to the stage. And they got James Carville and Mary Madeline and John Flannery, later of Mad Men, and um, a decent cast. And they were doing um, the show K Street. Um, and the lead writer on it is a, now a dear friend of mine for decades named Henry Bean. Henry I had originally met um, over a case that's a whole nother show about my representing a wrongly accused Brinks terrorist who did blow up the Capitol, but she was not a Brinks terrorist named Susan Rosenberg. That's for another day. But from that representation, <laughs> I admit... That for another Henry, day. Yeah, we'll just put that one to the side for another day. Okay, continue. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, in that representation and getting Susan Rosenberg basically off... Um, I had been hired by Henry Bean, a screenwriter, because Susan Rosenberg, when she was in jail, had won 
a, a screenwriting award. Um, I was hired by a rabbi, a screenwriter, uh, and a, uh, a, a congressman who knew the story of Susan Rosenberg and thought what was happening to her was unfair, and I got to be friends with Henry. Henry then was picked by George Clooney and Soderbergh to be the lead writer for K Street, and Henry gave me a call and said, I'm doing this. I need someone to advise on politics and law in Washington. I know no one better than you. Would you help us? That was, look, I'm, I'm litigating major cases 80 hours a week. Would I help George Clooney and Steven Soderbergh advising on their show? This was not a hard question. So for the first five episodes, I'm on set advising them. When we went to the, the um, kickoff party, Michelle and I sat in the corner and we stared at George Clooney in the side and Soderbergh and John Flannery and all the actors. And we were, you know, we were in the far corner looking like, you know, oh, my gosh. Um, but by episode six, Soderbergh's pretty comfortable with it, saying, this isn't right, ask Howard what to do. And finally, he turns to me and says, uh, enough telling us, can you do it? Um, they needed someone to do the grand jury process, to be the defense attorney. I don't know how to act. I don't have time to learn how to act. But to be a lawyer in the grand jury process, that's pretty easy. Um, so... They then get the Screen Actors Guild to waive. I wasn't admitted. Uh, but once you have three appearances on screen and talking parts, you qualify for your Screen Actors Guild card. And so I appeared in three of the, la the last... Oh, oh, hold, three hold, of the hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you jump ahead here, I want to hear about this moment when they turned to you and they said, stop you know, telling us how it should work. We want you to act it out. What was your response? <laughs> Kevin, the one thing I've never been short on is your is confidence. Is ego. I said, sure. <laughs> Why not? Okay, so so did it happen right then or did they get you to make up or did they did did, no, did you have no, to they, did you have to read the they, script and memorize the lines? Like what happened? Three days later, it it was it was scripted out but only loosely. Yeah. And three days later, when we were filming, I had to be ready with my part of the... Well, actually, the first one, I appeared in for it. The first one, I think I hold today the longest appearance of a voice over a... Uh, over a... Um, uh, whatever you... Uh, speaker box, you know, where a lot of people are listening in a conference room. And they call me for advice, and the first one is all my voice. It's like Charlie's Angels, when you hear, you right. know, Charlie's yeah. boss... Uh, but I, I probably had 10 minutes of talking on that show with Carville and Flannery and the like, looking at this box of my voice coming out. And the next week I appeared, and I appeared on the last three episodes. <laughs> um, and I basically argue with the prosecutor and the grand jury, and I prep them for their appearance. Look, to me, this is boring stuff, but George Clooney and Steven Soderbergh believe this was great television, so... Rent K Street, and you will see. What did you get? My what did, what did you get paid to do that? I got Screen Actors Guild minimums. Um, I think it's, I think it is, uh, either seventy-five dollars a day or one hundred and twenty. When I did Noise with Tim Robbins, I think it was one hundred and twenty-five dollars a day, because, because when I, I'll tell you, when I was up for the U.S. ambassadorship and going through my vetting. Um, uh, you get vetted forever, the FBI, the IRS. I got visited by two IRS agents 
who told me that they had a problem with my vetting for underreporting income. Now, I'm a Williams & Connolly partner. Let's just say I made a lot of money as a Williams & Connolly partner. But you just get an end-of-year tax form. You know, you just give it to your accountant. There's no right. way to underreport. Right. But they had seen that I had been in the movie oh, Noise. God, 125 bucks you're going to get audited for. Day, for. For five days. So yeah. we're talking about a seven-figure return, <laughs> and they thought I'd left off $625. Yeah. So I did the most thing I would never let a client do. I was indignant. While they're sitting in my office, I, uh, their speakerphone was the word I couldn't think of, I call my accountant, put them on the speakerphone, and say, how I've got two IRS agents, they're vetting me for the ambassadorship, and they say we didn't report the, the $625 I should have received at least from noise. And Hal said, do you remember that we figured out what it cost you every day uh, you to go to New York to film noise, yeah. and you had net loss of money, and I asked you whether you wanted to take a deduction. <laughs> And you said you wouldn't charge the American taxpayers because you were having fun filming a, a movie for five days with this cast. And so we left it off your return. And, st- and those two IRS agents slunk out of my office like you can't imagine. But this, I think, was $125 a day. And I was shuttling back and forth from, uh, to New York okay. uh, to film it. Six. So that's what I got. I got probably with, with Clooney. Um, you didn't mention noise specifically. You've mentioned it in passing in talking about the IRS agents and a couple of other well, references. Noise for you with Tim so Robbins. First, yeah. We're first with K Street. Right. In the, From that, I earned my Screen Actors Guild card. Right. Um, once you have it, and if you have enough contacts, people are happy to kind of put you in. So fast forward. Henry Bean actually was the writer, director on Noise. It starred Tim Robbins, William Hurt, Billy Baldwin, um, Bridget Monaghan, who was married to Tom Brady and is on Blue Bloods. Um, So a stellar cast. And Henry said, do you want to play Tim Robbins' lawyer in Noise? Now, people should rent the movie Noise. Noise was the best movie ever made that virtually no one ever saw. Uh, And the way we know that is... The second week on Wednesday, the L.A. Times comes out with, on Wednesday, the must-see movie of the week. Mm-hmm. And they had picked Noise as the must-see movie for that coming weekend. And we had already closed the prior weekend in L.A. We weren't <laughs> even in the theaters anymore. Um, and so I played Tim Robbins' lawyer. Um, and Tim and I, so that's after the Soderbergh Clooney on K Street. So I get my Screen Actors Guild card from the three appearances and four appearances in K Street. You need three on-camera appearances with lines to qualify. Once you have your card, you can be put in anything. Um, uh, and uh, so Henry had needed a lawyer in, in noise, and he put me in there. And so there I am on set with all this cast. You know, you get your trailer and you get stand-in you, you for got it. You, Gutman. You got, a, you got a trailer? You get a trailer with your name on it, and you get, you know, when they block the shots, there's some guy who's getting paid to stand there for me so I don't have to go through the trouble of standing while they block out the shots. Well, the rest of the people are Tim Robbins, William Hurt, and Billy Baldwin. They need one. Howard Gutman would have stood in for himself. But, yep, you get the whole kit and caboodle. I had that on Fame, my third movie as well. 
Um, what, what, what was fame? Fame, like, fame is... Are you talking about the, the musical? The remake of fame in 2009. We'll get to that next. Like Irene Cara fame? It, the, the, it's the remake of the, the high school of performing arts, the movie Fame. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so in yeah. 2009 there was a remake. I was in that one playing the father of the kid who's the videographer. Um, I filmed it, and this is unbelievable, I filmed it in January 2009. Obama calls in February 2009 to ask me to become U.S. ambassador. You were Mr. Bazinski in that movie. There you go, the butcher. And when I got asked by my friend Tom Rosenberg from Lakeshore Productions if I would be in fame, um, uh, I said, Tom, uh, there's no lawyer in fame. I only know how to play words, because remember, I don't know how to act. He said, no. Well, you know, there's a role for the father of a high schooler, and the high schooler wants money, and the father tells him no. And I said, Tom, that role I can do. So that was with Kelsey Grammer. Yeah. And I had my trailer on that one, and I play the father of the high schooler in fame. So, but let's go back to Noise and Tim, because that's how we got to Silo. So in Noise, there is the cast. It's Tim Robbins, it's Bridget Moynihan, it's William Hurt, and it's Billy Baldwin. What year? We're filming... Oh boy! It was two thousand seven. Well, it was okay, two thousand seven. Yeah. So I left. I left America in two thousand nine to move to Belgium in July. I filmed Fame in January. So to jump ahead to that one, I filmed Fame in January. Obama calls me in February of '09. I finally get vetted through June. I get sworn in, and I finally leave for the ambassadorship in August of two thousand nine. The movie opens worldwide fame in October of 2009. So there I am. I've arrived as the new U.S. ambassador in Belgium in August of 2009. And then coming to their theaters is this movie about the high school performing arts, and their new ambassador is playing a butcher in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> the State Department wasn't that happened. I had done it beforehand. I couldn't control the release. So we turned it into a massive public relations event. I had some of the, uh, one of the black young uh, uh, actresses and a gay male actor come um, to Belgium. I took them to Molenbeek, to the Muslim um, area where there's tension. Um, we invited the community. All the papers came. And the community center in Molenbeek, Belgium, had all the young kids rehearse the theme song to fame. Now, remember, they're Francophones. They didn't even speak English. Right. Their mothers came. All the kids had makeup on. And the Muslim community, where there's tension in Belgium, they put on a performance of fame for me and Natori Norton, um, the, the actors from fame. Um, and we had a grand time of it. So it worked out. Uh, I turned it into, the, into a, um, uh, a public relations event. But we can go back to noise in 2007. But wait a minute, on fame, uh, fame real yes. quickly. So Kelsey Grammer and Babe Newworth, both of whom were in Cheers together, yep. Um, yep. was in that movie. And by the way, a very, uh, I don't know what her role was. She, it just says gorgeous blonde. Paulina Gretzky was in the, in, in the movie. I got to admit, I missed that one. <laughs> I, I spent time with Kelsey Grammer and Tori Norton and... Paul Iacono, Paul played my son, so all my scenes were with Paul. Um, and Notoria is still an actress. She's in, appears in lots of things. Uh, and Paul is still clubbing or something in New York. Um, but I played the father of the butcher uh, in the remake of Fame. What kind of guy was Kelsey Grammer? 
Um, he he had a. I've met a lot of these guys. He had a sense of humor. He was approachable. He wasn't. George Clooney is a fabulous man. Uh, and we're going to get to Clooney because you're, okay. you're 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 buddies with Clooney. Um, but uh, like I'm just looking at the the the, the lineups because you got to go deep into the cast because it's now you know um, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, some of these movies. So some of these people were young actors. Now I did see that this guy Charles Dutton, who um, I remember from Rudy. I also remember him from another movie, but he was the uh, the Notre Dame Stadium, you know, head, uh, you know, head custodial guy, uh, right. who, who Rudy, who hires Rudy early in that movie. He's in that movie. Um, all right, so continue. So back to okay, noise and Tim Robbins. Back to noise. Yeah. So I have Tim um, Henry says play Tim's lawyer. Uh, I help him a little with the script. I've got my own lines. I'm going to be filming with Tim. But I'm a Williamson Connolly partner, you know, pretty boring day to day. I want to go spend time with William Hurt and Billy Baldwin and Bridget Moynihan. So I spend a lot of time on the set, and it's an interesting mix of people. Bridget Moynihan, who was married to Tom Brady and, um, and now is on Blue Buds, she sat in the corner with a book, had her face buried in the book, and had no time for anyone as far as I could tell. Billy Baldwin... We're filming on the streets of Manhattan. If a skirt walked by, Billy Baldwin left the set and went to chat up the skirt. <laughs> um, so that was, that was, then there was William Hurt. Now I have met lots of unusual people in my, in my time. I have uh-huh. met Afghan warlords. I've been to Afghanistan twice as U.S. ambassador. I've met with Afghan warlords. The strangest human being I've ever met in my entire life was William Hurt. Really? Uh, Strange how? I wouldn't tell it. I wouldn't tell it if he hadn't, if he's still around. Because, but so, uh, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to meeting William Hurt, and he wasn't in my scenes. I had I had filmed three or four days with Tim, but I was there on the day that he was filming, and so we're all in the actors' area and the like, and he's not on set and the like. So I go up, and all I said, Kevin, all I said was, Hi, Mr. Hurt. I'm Howard Gutman. I play Tim's lawyer. That was all I said. And then he turns and says, You're the real one, right? I didn't even know what that meant to start with, and I quickly figured out it meant the real lawyer. Um, You're the real one, right? Two years. Two years. Even now I'm suffering. And I thought, I, I then enter a 20-minute diatribe that I have almost no idea. Like, I, I thought it must be he's practicing a soliloquy, he's playing a joke. Because I have no idea, but he's yelling at me. And, yelling, and I can finally tell maybe 10 minutes into this rant that he's, talking about his experience with the lawyers in his divorce and oh his ex-wife. And he's just going on about the, the, the justice system. And, as I'm, and, and I seem to represent it all because he knew that the guy who was playing Tim Robbins' lawyer was a real lawyer. That's all he must have oh heard. And he was going to let off on... And so finally, in this rant, I find out, I can tell that originally the wife got custody of the children, and it took him two years to get them back. 
but I'm, I'm finally looking for somewhere not to get punched, not to, to get light in the story. And he gets to the part where he gets custody finally. And I go, I finally get word, and I said, oh, so you ended up with custody of the children. And he goes, they're ruined. Two years, they're ruined. And people are looking, why is William Hurt screaming at this guy who had only said, hi, Mr. Hurt, I'm Howard Gutman, I play Tim's lawyer. So after this is over, I go to Henry Bean, and I say, Henry, I just had the oddest interchange with anyone I've ever had with William Hurt. And Henry turns and said, oh, everyone knows he's nuts, but he's a great actor. Oh, my <laughs> God. That was, that was William Hurt. So in that crowd, yeah. Tim Robbins and I hit it off pretty well. He had gone to Stuyvesant High School, another um, you know, gifted and talented high school in New York that you take exams for. Um, and um, I had gone to Bronx Science. We both had kids. My kids were, I don't know, six years. He had just gone through college or were going through college, and his were applying in that stage. He was still with Susan Sarandon at the time. Right. I knew his politics would be left. I'm a Democrat, obviously, but I'm, I'm not the Susan Sarandon stage of the party, but he's obviously interested in issues. So we hit it off pretty well, uh, and I spent the time. Then fast forward, and I'm U.S. ambassador in Belgium, and he has broken up with Susan Sarandon. She, had, she seems to do well sort of serial you know, dating younger. Uh, and he was coming to Belgium for a performance in a small club in Antwerp mm-hmm. because his brother and he, for his fun, had a little duet where they played, I think, jazz music. And he had gotten booked in a club in Antwerp. So I met him when he came to Belgium in Antwerp. We went out to dinner, came over to the house, um, and hung again. Um, and every election... I've still got the email every election. I, when I was you know, fundraising for people, I'd hit him up, see if he wanted to support. Um, uh, you you, you kind of got that contact with Hollywood. Um, but, you know, the kind of guy like us, I'd love to have dinner in Antwerp if we were together in Antwerp. Uh, and then, uh, and so when I'm looking at Silo and incomes, Tim Robbins, that led to the story. You know, so... Um... William Hurt, by the way, Body Heat with Kathleen Turner. If you're trying to picture William Hurt, he was also in broadcast news with Holly Hunter, um, among many good movies that he was in. But with respect to t- so, all right, so the Tim Robbins story that that's amazing, by the way, and it doesn't surprise me that these people, and I'm saying this obviously not surprised. Um, <laughs> I don't want it to come off the wrong way but that you end up being somebody that they reach out to hang out with because you are great company and an incredible conversation at any of the at any point during this did you consider hmm maybe hollywood is my life maybe this lawyer thing is whatever i got my own trailer i'm now in multiple movies maybe i can become an actor Kevin, the one problem was, if you're a Williamson Connolly partner, where I didn't have time to learn to act, nor do I have any talent whatsoever, as far as I could tell, and I certainly didn't have the looks. If you see, I can play a lawyer. On radio, I do a political commentary. That's kind of where I'm comfortable. 
Um, it's a great, again, it's great to visit the zoo. You don't want to get in the cage too long with them. But again, there are genuinely terrific people, just there can be a lot of the William Hurt experiences. Going back to K Street, I know he's gotten maligned by a lot of people. George Clooney is a fabulous person. George Clooney is a wonderful person. So um, when I got to K Street, to the set of K Street, I'm a Washington lawyer. There's all these stars and actors. You go get your lunch on the, on the catering trucks. And I would take my tray and I'd sit away from the people. I'm not going to go slip next to Soderbergh and Clooney and start shooting the breeze. So I'm sitting away. Uh, and then Clooney gets his tray at the truck. And I see he passes Flannery and he passes Soderbergh. And he's looking. And I realize he's headed over to me. And he sits down for lunch, and it's because he wanted to talk about politics. Right. He wanted to talk about Washington. He didn't want to talk about the nonsense of L.A. So we had great conversations. George Clooney is the first person ever to tell me about Barack Obama. The first time I ever heard the name, I was at the time kicking the tires with Mark Warner, most people don't realize Mark Warner ran for president, but there's that period, the two years before you announce you're running for president, where the people are doing now, you know, DeSantis did or Christie did, where you go around the country and dig up your support. Mark has been a friend since first day of law school in 1977. And in 2005 and 2006, Mark and I helped second Mark going around the country, running for president and what was everyone assumed would be Hillary Clinton's in 2008, and we had the proposition that her support was 3,000 miles wide and an eighth of an inch deep, and if somebody uh, could break it by changing the election from about the past and the Clinton name to the future, uh, it could be Mark. And so for 16 months, we had traveled the country while I worked at Williams Economy and while I auditioned for this nonsense um, uh, on the presidential stuff. So Clooney comes to see me and says, so who do you think is going to be uh, in 2008, and I'm telling him all about Mark Warner, this U.S. senator. And he starts telling me about a state senator in Illinois, mm-hmm. not a federal, not a U.S. senator, named Barack Obama. And I remember thinking, what a knucklehead uh, Hollywood guy. He doesn't know the difference <laughs> between a state senator, who obviously can't run for president, right. and a U.S. senator. I'm telling him about Mark Warner. George Clooney had the sense... So then Barack immediately ran for the, the Senate, won two years later, obviously won for president. But George Clooney had told about that. He was interested in it. Now, Clooney's father, who worked for, I think, the American Movie Channel, Clooney's father um, was running for Congress in Kentucky, or he lived in Cincinnati, was running in Kentucky, or he lived in Kentucky, was running in Cincinnati. Um, and... Clooney could not really help him much there because that was conservative yeah, world. Right. And, um, but um, we're on set. I get to me and I said, if you'd like, you know, I've done a bunch of political fundraising. I'd be delighted to throw a fundraiser for your dad. And Clooney was, could not have been more thankful and says, you know, he and his mom will come. So in, in Bethesda, Maryland, if you're having George Clooney come to your house, right. this is the easiest fundraising <laughs> ever to do in the world. Yeah. You just kind of say, for a thousand bucks, come meet George Clooney's dad, who nobody would necessarily want to support in the Cincinnati congressional race, 
but George will be there. Right. This is my most successful fundraiser yeah. so ever. So what, what was that ahead? Uh, a thousand bucks. A thousand bucks. Um, that sold out quickly. Uh, that sold out quickly. And I Never, have a you didn't. Actually. You didn't really. You just said you just called him George Clooney's father, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. I have to say Nick Clooney. So I mean, we're having George Clooney come to our house, and everybody we know is coming. And Michelle turns to me like ten minutes before they get there and says, "You know, if I'm ever going to cheat on you, it'll be with George Clooney." Right. So I'm not that worried. They ring the doorbell. There's Nick Clooney, George's mom, and George standing on my on my stoop. Um, but he was filming Suriana at the time, so we could time it by whenever Suriana was made. And he had gained 15 pounds and grown a beard. Mm-hmm. Um, so Michelle turns and says, don't worry, you're safe. Um, but he couldn't have been nicer. He couldn't have been more gracious. My son, Chase, you know, the kids are all, um, and he was, couldn't have been more lovely. And so he, he's feeling so warm. It's such a successful fundraiser. We've just finished shooting at K Street, and it's gone so well. So genuinely, he turns to Michelle and, and me and says, you know, you guys need to join me at Lake Como this summer at, at my villain Lake Como. <laughs> and Michelle and I are like, uh, well, thank you. That's really lovely. But right. we really, And to make me feel better and to yeah, encourage the fun, he goes, no, no, no. Yeah. Everybody comes, Brad and Jen. Mm. And I realize. Howard and Michelle. <laughs> Howard right. Michelle. Right? I mean, that's what he's I telling Brad Michelle. and Jenny. He's like, look, Howard and Michelle are going to be Michelle there. Please coming. come come, uh, hang out with us in Lake Como. So uh, we, we thanked him very much, but it just didn't comfort us that it would be all the regular folks, George, Brad and Jen, <laughs> Howard and Michelle. So, um, but really a lovely guy. Um, and even now, again, I don't know when I spoke to him last, he, he has a right-hand man named Grant Heslov, who he's done everything with. And I think I sent... Grant, the script that I was working on now, um, uh, I did send Grant, and we talked. I don't know if I talked to George, but again, it's the kind of thing where if you were had something to say, um, a lovely man. All right, uh, more coming up with Howard right after these words from a few of our sponsors. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Obviously you didn't consider this because first of all the, the pay wasn't great as 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 a bit actor but once you got your sag card um you could have become a character actor i mean look at you know there are plenty of examples of of for, you're you're knocking your looks but you're you're a hell of a lot better looking than steve buscemi who's had quite <laughs> who's had quite a career um you know, you you had obviously carved out a little bit of a niche there for a few years, and I bet if you had stuck with it, let's just pretend for a moment, hypothetically, that you did not have, um, you know, uh, th- that your that your legal expertise was at a small, you know, boutique law firm that didn't have a lot of clients, and you were thinking about getting out of that business to begin with, and if you had pursued this, you you could have had a career as kind of a character actor. 
I actually, See, I always, I, I always dislike the word career. So what do I do now? I mean, I've got a weekly radio show and political commentary show. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I am still working in L.A. I've written a treatment and a pilot of a television series that I'm doing with uh, Grand Via Mark Johnson, the producers of Breaking Better Bad, Call Better Saul. Call Saul. Yeah. Wait, um, you're doing what? So, you're doing what with Mark Johnson? I wrote a treatment and uh-huh. a pilot. Yeah. And we are we right now have a Screen Actors Guild um, uh, strike, uh, writer strike, uh, so we can do nothing. But I have written I have written draft eleven. They have edited draft eleven, and we are now getting ready to pitch. Except you can't pitch anything during the writer's strike. Um, so I'm I haven't given it up. I still do all my consulting. I I do boring stuff most of the time. Dredging and offshore wind and marine plastics for major companies and consulting. But I still do the radio. I still do, and I still I haven't given up the interest in television. Um, I just thought, you know, I could write one of these. So I've got a show that we've done 11 drafts with Grand Via, with Mark and, and his people Tom and Jess there, and we were supposed to pitch, um, uh, but we're, there's no pitching in, in Hollywood right now with the writer's strike. So what, hopefully so in a year I'll have a TV series coming on. But you're not, you can't tell us what the treatment is or what the show's about. But you're pitching it to Mark Johnson, the producer of Breaking no, no. Bad. Mark and is, Mar- I've been doing it with Mark in development. So I sent the treatment to Mark Johnson um, at, the, at the start of COVID, uh-huh. um, thinking that would be three months. He loved it. I didn't know how to write a pilot, um, so we made a list of who we should interview as writers, the writers from Homeland, the writers from a bunch, but we never got back to that world. So in the interim, while we were waiting to be able to start uh, meeting with writers and the like, uh, I called Henry Bean and said, what do you write a script on? Uh, And he told me the software. I bought it. I read the directions. And you know me, I... I wrote a first draft of a horrendous pilot. Henry said, don't quit your day job. A couple of drafts that Henry reviewed, and I finally sent it to Mark Johnson, and his team gave me a bunch of comments. We're now two and a half years and 12 drafts later, and we've got a pilot. I know, but you you can't tell us what the pilot is or what the series is about. I'll give you the name, so if you hear it, you'll know it's called Khalil, K-H-A-L-I-L. K-H-A-L-I-L. Um, it's a it's a Washington diplomatic <laughs> was, international L.A. New York kind of power kind of show. We'll leave it at that. I don't want to give it away. No, I'm not going to ask you to give it away. Um, my God, I mean, Tim Robbins, George Clooney, Billy Baldwin, uh, William Hurt, the the weirdest person you've ever met in your life. Um, all of these. I mean, Steve Rebell and, and Ian Schrager, for crying out loud. Mark Johnson. I mean, everybody's a Breaking Bad fan, I think, and Better Call Saul f- a fan. Um, what else have I not asked you that would be interesting? Kevin, for your listeners, they're the, the best people I know, my, my closest friends, it's never, never about fame. It's not about their fortune. Um, you meet great people and bad people and everything, my best my best friends, you know, are, are they're, they're no different than anyone, except sometimes they're more flawed. 
um, but you just learn and try to move on and and, and enjoy it. Um, but believe me, the stargazing in, in, in California, that can wear off. It's just a lot of fun to tell stories uh, when it's over. Stories that are so much fun to listen to. Uh, that was from Tuesday's show. I held that part back for today because the first part, which if you haven't listened to, you should go back and listen to Tuesday's show, where Howard talks about his days working at Studio 54 in the late 70s uh, when he was a student undergrad at Columbia. Uh, Howard's been such a great help uh, to us in recent years with all of the investigations, um, the sale, uh, and it's so appreciated uh, by me and I know a lot of you uh, as well. I'm sure the next time we have Howard on, there will be another story uh, that we haven't heard that'll be fun to listen to. All right, um, that is it for the week. Uh, I'm away for a few days and I will be back late next week. Uh, Take care. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh, oh. 